On today's episode, insights into bone overuse injuries. Welcome to the podcast, helping you train, rehab, and run smarter. When I first started running in my 20s, I knew it would be something I'd be passionate about for the rest of my life. But unfortunately, developing injury after injury disrupted my progress and left me undertrained at the start line on race day. Even with my knowledge as a physio, I still fell victim to the vicious injury cycle and when searching for answers, struggled to decipher between common running myths and evidence-based guidance. That's what this podcast is here to help you with. So join me as a Run Smarter Scholar and let's break the injury cycle by raising your running IQ and achieving running feats you never thought possible. Hello, Run Smarter Scholars. Uh, Thanks for joining me on another episode. Um, As you might have realized from the pre-roll ad, the new patron tiers have rolled out. Um, That's if, unless you're listening to this episode in the distant future, uh, what I have now structured with the podcast is to have pre-roll ads. So they're what we call like dynamic ads. Essentially what it is, is like I just create a campaign, create one ad and then um, click, you know, start campaign and it will be in the start of every Run Smarter podcast episode up until the point I cancel that or, you know, pause that campaign, maybe replace it with another campaign. Um, So if you are listening to this in the future, maybe I have changed the pre-roll ad, but if you are listening to this um, at the time of release, you'll see that I'm promoting the new patron tiers alongside like all the free stuff as well that you have access to. So the link will be in the description. You'll check it out straight after this episode because I don't want you going away. Let's listen to this episode first and then you can go check out those patron tiers. And if you do want to sign up, like it's going to be a second run smarter podcast episode every week, instead of just doing the, the once a week that we'll receive every Friday, you'll receive a different patron exclusive episode um, and like I said in the, the pre-roll, it will be either a Q&A or a injury chat insight. Uh, yeah, really, really fun stuff. Hope you can see a lot of the value and there's, you know, you can get more one-on-one time with me in some of the tiers. We can jump on a call and have a chat at frequent intervals that you can get the online course for free. You can get um, the book at severely discounted price. It'll just be like, the, the printing cost, um, the audio book for free. Go check it out. There's a ton of stuff there. Um, and got some new patrons to welcome. Chris O'Callaghan, Leanne Smith, and Maurice Tusa, um, our brand new honors patrons. Thanks for joining. Thanks for signing up. And I'll start welcoming in others. I know some have signed up, but they haven't um, entered their first and last name. So I don't know who to thank. So if you're looking to sign up, in the near future, I'll give you a shout out and um, make sure you just go onto your profile and enter your first and last name. So I know who to shout it out to. Also bear in mind that if you are in the US, which is like, I think 65, 70% of the audience for the podcast, um, you essentially get a the patron tiers a discounted price because it's all in Australian dollars. And so if you sign up for the $10 tier, it's something like six US dollars. So um you know, maybe a bargain if you're looking to to get into that, if you are in the US. And let's, I guess, let's get on with the content. So uh, I wanted to do a review, a paper review, research paper review. Um, 
This one in particular, I have been on the prowl for really good running research articles to um, to review because uh, one of the patron tiers is one of the episodes that I'm doing per month is reviewing research articles and they have to be practical that I find and hopefully you find really interesting, recent, um, but also accessible, like um, also not behind a paywall because what I want patrons to do is listen to the episode, me reviewing it all, and then you actually have access to that paper. So um, through the patron um, subscription, you get like a link and the link will take you to the paper so you can go through it before, during, after listening to that review where I, you know, sort of talk through it. I've already got one episode up there. It was a systematic review looking at the effects of running shoes on running economy, running performance and biomechanics. They break it down into like the brand and the model, which ones have the best running economy. So like I said, really practical, hopefully really interesting for you and you get access to that paper as well. So that episode has already been recorded. Um, but this paper in particular, I have a lot of interest around, but it wasn't, it was behind a paywall and I couldn't get free access to it. So, um, I had to reach out to you. If you're familiar with the Facebook group, um, posts, you would have seen, I sort of put a, a call out to anyone who could help me. So thanks Sam Todd, who actually got this paper because I had the title and it sounded really interesting. Um, and yeah, just wanted to see if we can get a hold of it. So this wasn't going to be in the patron episodes just because, um, they wouldn't be able to get access to it. So I'm now putting it on the main feed and the title of it, it's a 2022 paper talking about, um, well, the title is not all bone overuse injuries are stress fractures. It is time for updated terminology. And so this talks about exactly what the title talks about, um, stress fractures, bone stress reactions, um, grading each of these and some things you really need to be cautious of when dealing with these type of injuries. So to kick us off, um, the paper, the introduction to the paper says, mention stress fracture to an athlete or a coach and there is an instant concern. The term stress fracture has deep roots in our vernacular. Its use in the literature has risen steadily since the 1970s to the 1980s and has shown no sign of warning. So the injury shows no sign of warning. But are we talking about the same thing? And does it matter? So I guess, you know, there's a lot of fear around stress fractures. It's probably what runners fear the most, particularly because it's the most serious. It's the most time off running. And, you know, it it's sort of the exception to the rule when it comes to managing running injuries. There's a lot of rules, like universal principles that we apply. We say, you know, you can still run provided that, you know, acceptable pain rules, sometimes continuing to run or exercise or stress that particular injury within the adaptation sweet spot is encouraging. Or well, we encourage that. We don't want to completely rest. All these things that we talk about in the podcast, the stress fracture seems to be the exception to the rule because we don't want any symptoms whatsoever. Sometimes it is time off depending on the location and the severity, which we'll talk about in a second. But sometimes it's, you know, non-weight bearing for several weeks. And when you do return to activity, it is symptom-free. They're the rules. And that's 
completely different to all those other plantar fasciitis and Achilles tendinopathies and other tendinopathies and muscle strains and all those sorts of things that we, we do um, because it is so serious. It's, you know, people fear it the most. They're like, God, I hope this isn't a stress fracture. But a lot of times it's misdiagnosed for a very, very long time. Research shows that stress fractures, I think it was around about six months, six months until six months of developing a stress fracture, six months in is when it actually gets diagnosed. That is way too long. And it can only because it masquerades as something else might masquerade as like a um, tendinopathy or just an overuse injury. And then all of a sudden, bang, we get an MRI and there's all this bone stress that's going on. And that's six months down the track. Usually you've done more damage in that first six months. So yeah, really, really tough. Let's continue into this paper. So they've got the subtitle, subheading, most bone stress injuries are not stress fractures. So they say, stress fractures are a type of bone stress injury. A bone stress injury represents the inability of a general normal bone to withstand repetitive loading, leading to localized bone weakness and pain. Stress fractures are characterized by a discernible fracture line on imaging. Only one in five athletes presenting with a bone stress injury have a stress fracture. Only one in five. The other 80% have stress reactions, evident by altered signal intensity within the marrow, endosteum, or the periosteum on MRI. The MRI is the gold standard of imaging for imaging of bone stress reactions or bone stress injuries. So let's break that down. One in five athletes presenting with a bone stress injury actually has a stress fracture. So you could scan, you know, your tibia and say, oh, there's no stress fracture, happy days. But you could have this underlying bone stress injury or bone stress reaction. So this is essentially what the premise of the the paper is, is trying to say that just because you have a bone stress fracture, just because you don't have a, a stress fracture doesn't mean that, you know, there could be some other serious stuff going on. And they do say that an MRI is the gold standard. So you can't just get an x-ray, see that there's no fracture or stress fracture and completely erase the idea. Just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know, I have just updated my five day injury prevention challenge. This is one email per day for five days, learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury. The sign-up link is in the show notes, so fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow. A bone stress injury going on because there still could be something going on. So what's happening here? So the start of this particular section of the paper says that a bone stress injury represents the inability of a general normal bone to withstand repetitive loading, which then leads to bone weakness and then pain. There is a certain uh, turnover when it comes to bone remodeling. So when you stress a bone, so that could be loading it, jumping, landing, sometimes running. Running isn't that strenuous on bone, but changing direction, um, essentially like bending the bone. If you land with straight legs, as an example, or if you take off and pivot in a different direction, you're sort of warping the bones and sort of bending them a little bit 
and loading them in different ways. What that what that does is sort of stress the bone and stimulates like little breakdown of the the bone osteoclasts, if I remember, or osteoblasts, one or the other. I'm trying to remember my uni days. Um, it breaks down the components of the bone, which is healthy. It's kind of like when you damage your muscle in the gym to eventually get it to grow stronger. The same thing happens to the bone. But if that that breakdown is excessive and continues to happen without that necessary rebuilding phase coming into effect, if there's an imbalance between the two, then there starts to be more breakdown than build up and then there starts to become a reaction to either the lining on the outside of the bone or deep in the bone marrow, some sort of reaction going on there that leads to bone weakness. It's like chronic mismanagement. So not very, very rarely would like one or two sessions stimulate this or cause this. It's usually um, overuse over a period of like a, several weeks to a couple of months where it's quite obvious that there's been some bone overload way too much. It's trying to recover but you keep overstimulating it and overusing it so that it can't catch up. That bone cannot be made up. Um, and yeah, then that cycle sort of continues. And what runners need to realize is that bone turnover, that uh, breakdown and build up, is actually quite slow. It's not as simple as like a muscle or a tendon. You do a strong workout it's sore for a couple of days, it builds up and then it's stronger afterwards. And that whole process might take, you know, maybe a week, give or take, a couple of days sometimes, give or take. But bones take several weeks, like three to four weeks to have that adaptation turnover. And so you can overload your bones and it's not present until like it doesn't, the symptoms don't manifest until like four weeks down the track. So that's why it's so hard in terms of diagnosing it. It's so hard in terms of working out any sort of abrupt mechanical changes because you could just slowly be overloading it over a chronic period of time. You say, I haven't really done anything different, but you've overloaded it for the last six weeks or four weeks ago and might not be that apparent at the time of the onset of symptoms. So just something you need to bear in mind. I think it's very useful to know um, that bone adaptation cycle still needs to happen this is over a very, very short, uh, very long period of time. And yeah, similar to most things in the body, tendons, ligaments, joints, all that sort of stuff. The same thing needs to happen. Okay, let's move on with this paper with the next subheading, which is bone stress injuries can be graded. So, you know, one, two, three, four stages type of graded. Um, and I guess I should start off by saying that it's, well, to my understanding, my idea of bone stress reactions and bone stress injuries was all on like a continuum and it was like you know the bone initially starts off with undergoing some mild overuse if that continues to be managed uh, mismanaged it gets to like you know uh, a lot of inflammatory processes a lot of like degeneration a lot of breakdown in the bone um then it might start getting a bit sore. Maybe that's when things start becoming a bit simple, symptomatic. And then if it still is mismanaged, that's when a stress fracture develops. In other words, like the most abrupt form of a bone stress injury is a stress fracture. 
and it always starts off with some mild bone stress reaction. Um, that was my idea, like sort of visualizing it on a continuum. And this paper says that there remains limited supportive evidence of a pathology continuum for stress reactions to stress fracture, with the stress fractures not being preceded or coupled with stress reaction changes. Pretty much saying that um, there's not much evidence to support this continuing this continuum, only because some people develop a stress fracture and they don't have any signs of that the sort of milder forms developing. So it doesn't have to necessarily start with mild and get worse and worse and worse, and then eventually a stress fracture. Sometimes a stress fracture just happens. The paper continues. Nevertheless, with widening availability of MRI and the use of newer imaging sequences, it is possible to grade these bone stress reactions. Fredrickson et al. proposed an MRI-based grading system initially for tibial bone stress injuries and complementary grading classifications for bone stress injuries at other anatomical locations have been reported. I've got the um, paper in front of me and they do have a table looking at the grades. Let me just pull it up now. So there is um, a table with four grades and it's looking at grade one, grade two, grade three, grade four, and the sort of severity for each of these. All right, so just imagine grade one, grade two, and grade three, these can be categorized as a stress reaction. So no fracture whatsoever. A grade four is a stress fracture. Grade one into, uh, says to have some mild to moderate periosteal edema. So you can kind of call edema swelling and it's around the outer layer of the bone and says that there's um, normal marrow on MRI findings. So in terms of like the deep conditions of the bone, there's no real effects there. There's nothing that's really happened there. Um, in stage two, instead of there being mild to moderate periosteal edema, <clears throat> there is now moderate to severe edema and the bone marrow is starting to undergo some reaction as well. So there's some edema deeper in the bone where the marrow is. Grade three would be mild to moderate periosteal edema and severe effects edema going on in the marrow. So we're just looking at escalations in severity and then grade four being a visible fracture line on MRI with all the other stuff that's going on as well around the um, periosteal edema and the bone marrow and those sorts of things. So I guess grade one just gets Grade one, two, three, just more and more severe and sort of affects deeper into the bone. And then grade four would be a stress fracture. But it doesn't, what the paper is saying is it doesn't necessarily have to follow a continuum. It doesn't necessarily need to start at a grade one. It can go straight to a grade four um, in some circumstances. So the paper explains, the MRI grading scales are mostly based on a system of grades one to four with the higher number representing the more severe injury. For most classification symptoms, the first three grades are considered stress reactions. When there is a visible fracture line, the injury is typically graded as a grade four bone stress injury and considered a true stress fracture. They continue. Grading of the bone stress injuries may be prognostic. So a prognosis equals the um, healthy healing timeframes. Like 
if I was to give someone a prognosis, it is, okay, you will return back to pain-free running in 12 weeks. That's like a prognosis. So grading these things, if you come up with the grade, you can also, what the paper suggests is deliver some sort of prognostic information. And they say, bone stress injury grading better communicates potential severity and may be useful to predict return to sports. In a recent systematic review and meta-analysis, return to sport following grades one, two, three, and four took an average of, and then they have a table of the, the amount of days. So let me go through this. If you have a grade one bone stress injury, on average, people returned to sport in 41 days. Let me go through the grade one, two, three, and four. So 41 days, 70 days, 84 days, and 98 days. So if you had a true stress fracture, on average, people would, would be returning to sport in about 100 days. So we're looking over three months. But if someone's at that most mild form, like I say, bone turnover takes a long time. So if you've got just the periosteum, the very outer layer undergoing a mild reaction, it's going to take 41 days for, on average, well, in the past, whatever um, paper this population was looking at, 41 days to average return to sport. And I don't even know what return to sport is. Like, is that back to competitive sport? Were they able to do some sort of stuff before that? What was their exercise like before that? It, it wouldn't be 41 days of rest and then you're back to playing sport. But on average, that's the time frame we're looking at when it comes to um, develop. If you were diagnosed with a grade one bone stress injury, you know, we're looking at significant time off, which is why we need to be very, very careful with these sort of things and why we can't just dismiss and clear someone if they don't have a bone stress fracture. Okay, the paper continues. These observations indicate that stress fracture as a blanket term to describe all bone stress injuries can inaccurately imply a prolonged absence from activity. So um, like I was saying, even the most mild form requires five to six weeks of rehab before their return to sport. This data indicates that the use of the term stress reaction without a bone stress injury grade is not prognostic as not all bone reactions are equal. So pretty much saying like a diagnosis saying, oh, you have a bone stress reaction. That's not helpful for anyone because um, we don't really know how severe it is because if you just have a bone stress reaction, it could be a difference of 41 days to 84 days, almost double the recovery time. So prognostically speaking, just diagnosing you with a bone stress reaction um, is really kind of not that helpful. We want to know how aggressive or how severe the injury is. Um, and that's why you know, MRIs can be quite useful in these circumstances. And I usually don't recommend MRIs for just overuse injuries because of how incidental findings, how common incidental findings are, because an MRI will scan everything in very high detail. And it's the job of the sonographer or the radiographer to look at everything and just write down what they see. Um, you know, you could scan a knee and there'd be meniscal damage, cartilage damage, uh, all that sort of stuff in a healthy population for someone who has like innocent, 
patellofemoral pain. And so someone could go get an MRI scan for, for mild patellofemoral pain, which can be rehabbed in a couple of weeks. But then the report come back and say, you have all this going on. You have this damaged meniscus. You have this damaged cartilage, maybe mild to moderate osteoarthritis. You probably shouldn't run and, you know, it causes a lot of fear. And that was, that whole thing is not necessary. Um, and all that, all that's changed and caused a lot of that concern was just because you got an MRI and all these incidental findings reveal themselves. But if we're suspecting a bone stress reaction or a stress fracture, MRI is a gold standard and, you know, it's probably best that that's the option that we take. So keep that in mind. But also keep in mind that um, the location and the severity and all those sorts of things for a bone stress reaction plays a key role, which I'll talk about now because the paper... Again, another subheading, locations contribute to prognosis. So the location of the stress fracture or stress reaction um, really, really matters. So they say, imaging-based grading may assist in predicting recovery time, but consideration also needs to be given to bone stress reaction location. Some bone stress reactions occur at locations prone to healing delays, non-union or complete fracture. Essentially what they're saying, so um, some sites of the body can have delayed healing because they lack blood flow. They also say non-union, which is like if it were to be fractured, it's a common site where that those bones don't really fuse back together again. Uh, and a risk of, depending on the site, displaying a complete fracture, which is, you know, a lot more serious. So... Keep this in mind. So, um, when it comes to bone stress, when, when it comes to stress fractures, there are a list of high risk and a list list of low risk locations. If you have a stress fracture in a low risk, you know it's treated. You know you could probably still weight bear, still could probably walk around, still could exercise a little bit, provided that you know symptoms allow. Just make sure everything's symptom free. If something is a high risk, we take that very seriously. And that's where, you know, bed rest or splints or casts and a very, very slow graded exposure back to weight bearing is recommended. Let me tell you some examples. So if you have, um, if you have a stress fracture in your, the neck of your femur, so your thigh bone all the way up as it connects into the hip, there's kind of like the ball and socket. Um, kind of where the ball is, there's like a neck of the bone. If there's a stress fracture there, there is very little blood supply. So healing is going to take a long time. And there is also a risk of, you know, that fracture getting a lot worse based on, you know, the load and the angle that it's on and those sorts of things. There is also a bone in your foot called your navicular, which has very poor blood supply. So if you have a stress fracture there, it's going to take a very, very long time to heal because the um, blood blood flow is what you know promotes healing. So not a lot of blood supply, not a lot of healing takes place. So we want to take that very seriously. Um, the shin is an interesting one. I'll share that. So, you know, if you were to rub the front of your shin, the very, very front of your shin, you'll be able to feel the border of the tibia or the shin bone. That is the 
we'll call it the anterior border. So like the, the, um, the front of the shin. If you have a stress fracture there, that is actually a high risk. But on the other side of the shin, so it's more towards the inside of your calf, I guess, um, the posterior border, that is actually a low risk area. And so um, why that's the case is because when you load your leg, um, the tibia goes through a little bit of a bowing. You sort of bend that bone and you bend it in the direction of the front of your shin. So if you can imagine warping or bending a bone, there's going to be one side that actually lengthens and one side that shortens. So one side undergoes traction and the other side undergoes compression. If you have a, a fracture on the traction side, so you're sort of pulling things away, that can be quite dangerous because pulling things away when you bend a bow uh, or you bow that bone, that could lead to, you know, more of a fracture developing. But if you sort of have a fracture and when you load it, it compresses, it sort of pushes it together. It's not that worrying. It's not going to make things worse. So that's why the anterior border of your shin is high risk and why the other side is low risk. And, you know, it can get quite serious um, as this alludes to. So bone stress injuries at these locations require a more cautious management approach. Some may include surgical fixation, so actually requiring surgery, and often an extended return to sport time that is beyond the predicted time on just focusing on that, that table I was talking about before, the, the grading system for return to sport. So we need to factor this in. We need to layer in the location and severity when it comes to delivering some prognosis for people. Bone stress injury prognosis and return to sport may also be influenced by factors such as age and components of relative energy deficiency in sports, also known as RED-S. So breaking this down, um, just so you know, young people heal faster. Probably not a surprise for a lot of us, um, but if you, if a child or an adolescent has a stress fracture, you know, they can heal quite quickly. If someone in their 30s and 40s has a stress fracture, it's going to take a lot longer. So we need to factor this in. Uh, red S, this relative energy deficiency, if you've had, if you're currently if you currently have that, or if you've had that in the past, particularly in your developmental years, so commonly adolescence and young adulthood, um, red S is essentially meaning that you are exercising or producing a lot of energy that's at a deficit to what you are supplying your body with. <laughs> so, um, you know, where people have eating disorders and they're, or they might be, um, in an athletics team and really pressured to maintain their weight or lose weight. And so they don't eat, but they exercise quite hard. Um, what's going to happen is your body's going to be screaming for fuel, screaming for energy, and you're not supplying that for them. So what the body does very cleverly starts to extract energy, um, nutrients from what extracted from anything, really what it can get its hands on. And so, that's where it starts to extract stuff away from muscle, stuff away from your organs. And that's why you, you start to have a lot of um, 
dysfunction. So the organs can't function as well as they once did. And also the bone. It starts to extract minerals away from the bone because it needs something to continue pushing through and exercising. And so if this happens in your early, like, I guess, late childhood, adolescence, early adulthood, where your bone mass is, this is where you accumulate all of your bone mass, it can be really detrimental to, you know, later in life because your skeletal muscle is essentially underdeveloped and you've got that underdevelopment for the rest of your life and can lead, can be prone to bone stress injuries, bone stress fractures. And, um, you know, I think almost always, I don't see a lot of bone stress injuries, but when I do, if I see someone who's had multiple bone stress injuries, um, I could it, it's a very, very close correlation, I'll say, with someone who's also had a history of an eating disorder. Um, so, you know, very, very dangerous, very important that we consider these things. So looking at the grading system, looking at the location of that um, bone stress or stress fracture, also very important. The age of someone, very important. Um, and then just their history of energy deficiency and those sorts of things. So hopefully this highlights a few things for you. Um, the paper does also, in a helpful way, um, list a few recommendations. I've got four here, um, which kind of just acts as a bit of a summary. But number one, the term bone stress injury should be used to describe all clinically diagnosed overuse injuries to bone. Um, pretty self-explanatory. Number two, if imaging is performed, the bone stress injury should be assigned a grade to better communicate the degree of the injury and guide return to sport expectations. Number three, for the commonly adopted grading scale, so what I talked about um, before, grades one, two, or three, bone stress injuries may be secondarily referred to as bone stress reactions, with a stress fracture secondarily used to describe grade four bone stress injuries. And number four, return to sport expectations based on the imaging grade should also consider the bone stress injury location and other potential and other potential modulating factors. So I thought I'd, kick, uh, I'd sort of land the plane here and sort of finish this off with a few other bone stress reaction um, guidance, something we might not have covered yet. Um, signs and symptoms. So signs and symptoms might be um, pain on the bone. So if you're undergoing, if you're trying to manage your injury and you think it's shin splints or you think it's like um, plantar fasciitis, but you have pain pressing on the bone, or if, if you have pain in that bone location, or if you it's tender to touch the bone, these are signs that we need to take more seriously. Maybe get scans if your original uh, management isn't getting better. Some other signs and symptoms would be pain with loading. Uh, so if you have shin pain, if you have like pain in your hip or femur and you can't hop five times and it gets worse and worse the more you hop, um, that could be an indication of a bone stress reaction. But, you know, obviously if you have plantar fasciitis and it's really aggravated, a hop test will also be painful. So we do need to correlate. There'll be some crossover with a lot of these things. 
um, consider the differential diagnosis of a bone stress reaction if you're if things aren't getting better. So I've had people with pain around their sit bones or pelvis, and we sort of try and treat it like a uh, a tendinopathy, and it just doesn't get better. Doesn't get better. We're trying everything, and we're managing it properly, and for whatever reason, we expect it to get better, and it just doesn't. You know, you probably might want to get a scan because um, a stress reaction of like your sit bones or uh, around your pelvis, you know, isn't uncommon in runners. Pain in your shins, um, people like suspect shin splints, treat it like shin splints, it just doesn't get any better. Take take them for an MRI and if there's a bone stress reaction, hey, um, you know, maybe we should have done that earlier, but it's all coming down to treating it like something. If it doesn't get better, consider other options. The other thing um, with signs and symptoms, um, I guess signs, uh, if someone's had a, a history of bony stress reactions, um, you know, I'd really want to suspect, uh, we really want to keep that in the back of our minds. So if someone has a history, if they've had a bone stress reaction in their tibia, for they've had it like two or three times in the last 10 years and now they've got shin splints, you know, it's on my radar that it might be a bone stress reaction. So a history of other bone stress reactions is a, is something to keep in mind. And also, like we said earlier, red S is a um, something that we need to watch out for as well in someone's history. So that's all for today's episode and the paper. So now you can go check out all of the additional benefits in the patron uh, list. The link is in the description uh, and you can go check out the first 100 pages of the Run Smarter book for free. Go check it out now. Thanks for listening. And remember, every new insight brings you one step closer to your next running breakthrough. If you are struggling to overcome an injury, you can jump on a free 20-minute injury chat with me, which you can book through my calendar in the show notes. While you're in the show notes, elevate your running IQ by jumping onto my free email list so you can receive material to help rehab your injury, lower your injury risk, and increase your performance. If emails aren't for you, consider my Facebook group, Instagram, and YouTube channels. And remember, each insight you get from these resources brings you one step closer to your next running breakthrough.